Hi, um, back again for the last time. <clears throat> We've made it. We're at the last two chapters. So this is um, uh, chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation and what we, what we will call session 11. Um, before we start, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, uh, we've got some good feedback from these sessions and I'm quite keen to do maybe another couple of series before the end of the year. If, if you've listened all the way through um, this series and you're interested in being notified about any more um, podcasts that we put up, um, the way to uh, find out about the podcast is send me an email. So I've created a a Gmail account. So it's freeman.nick.d at gmail.com. Um, if you're not sure about the address, it's in the introductory little blurb on the podcast. You can look it up there. Um, send me an email just saying you want to be on a mail on the mailing list. And so when we do get going and do another one, I'll just let you know where you can where you can access it. Okay. Um, what are we doing? Chapter 21 and 22. Um, let's just start thanking the Lord for the journey he's taken us on and be good to finish off well. Dear Lord, thank you for um, this, um, th these amazing visions that you gave your servant John. Thank you for all the ways that they've encouraged the church through the centuries and um, brought some clarity and an unveiling of things that's true and that we can trust in. Thank you most of all for how it's shown us more about Jesus. And I just pray that um, the things that we've been learning together um, will help us live um, in this day, in 2020, in the world and in the church with you. Um, I ask all these things and, and especially help us today, Lord, just to finish off well. Um, I ask all these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Um, these are really exciting couple of chapters um, because we get to the culmination of God's great purpose in creation the thing that, that was on his heart and in his mind, even before the foundation of the world, what his ultimate um, hope and goal was for his creation and, and for, for the people, the covenant people that he loved and wanted to share his life with. And so you have this amazing picture in these chapters of um, re redemption being fulfilled, things coming together in in this final triumphant glorious vision of a new heaven and a new earth, all things made new. Um, and you can sense the excitement in the voice of the angels, in Jesus' voice as he proclaims things in these last two chapters. Um, it's, that they really are a special couple of chapters in the whole of the scriptures. Um, we might um, first of all listen to Hannah just read um, chapters 21 and 22, um, then we'll come back and start talking about it. Revelation chapter 21, 
the new Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all lies, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. 
the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation chapter 22, the river of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Jesus is coming. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Epilogue Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Okay, so... We are at the climax of the story. Um, this, is, this is what it's all been building towards, the great redemptive story of, 
um, recreation. Um, and this section re is really all about this idea of coming together. That's what consummation means. We're at the consummation of creation, mm -hmm. the consummation of the relationship between God and his people. So in all sorts of ways, things are coming together. Heaven and earth are coming together. Mm -hmm. um, heaven is coming down literally to the earth. Mm -hmm. That is the place where God dwells is going to be with men on mm -hmm. the earth and women. Um it's, it's the coming together of God's people. So we, there's lots of um, beautiful pictures here that are, sh are showing how God's weaving together his covenant people Israel mm -hmm. with um, his covenant people, the bride or the church. Um, and in some ways I feel a bit, Hannah, that um, uh, there's so much to analyse that's rich, but in some ways... It, poetry is almost more important than analysis here. Um, this is such an incredible work of imagination. This is God's, this is God's imaginative genius on display. Um, the thing that he's always had in his mind for his creation and for human beings. Um, and it's very much about worship and wonder and awe and imagination and all of those sorts of things. It reminds me of that chorus from a few years ago, I can only imagine, you know? A few years ago. <laughs> well, how many years ago? <laughs> Long time. Um, yeah, that, that sort of captures the mood of someone who would be glimpsing a vision like this, a vision so powerful. And what we see at the beginning of Chapter 21 is right at the heart of this consummation, of this creative work, is Jesus. So do you remember that picture that um, we looked at a number of sessions ago that that went through the sort of redemptive work of God and it begins with creation and then it narrows to a point at the end of the Old Testament where Jesus is the focus mm -hmm. of God's redemptive purpose and then from Jesus it expands through the church ultimately to a new creation. Well, um, that's where we are. But right at the heart of it is, is Jesus. And um, in the first half of chapter 21, um, it's quite amazing. We hear the voice of Jesus um, mm. talking to John, um, emphasising what he's done, his work and, and his person, who he is and what he's done. So he, he actually says, it is done. Um, in language that strongly recalls the cross, it is finished. Mm -hmm. um, and he also talks again about um, uh, the fact that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we've talked a lot in a number of sessions about this idea of Jesus being the end, that the end is a person. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on in this chapter is an amazing vision of a creative work, but like we've been saying for a number of chapters here, the meaning of it is all about relationships. It's all about Jesus, uh, the consummation of Jesus and all his relationships with those that belong to him, Israel and the church in particular. That's really the focus. It's about the covenant coming together. Um, and it recalls there, there's language in, in the chapter um, early in chapter 21, that, that strongly recalls um, the words that 
Yahweh spoke to Israel right back at the Exodus that have been the, the covenant promise to Israel all through the centuries, that idea of um, um, God promising that, that Israel will be or he, Israel will be his people and he will be with he will be their God and he will dwell with men. Mm-hmm. Um, that you see, uh, we could go look at uh, verses in Exodus where, where Yahweh keeps reminding Israel of this very point. Um, and then the prophets um, pick up on this language as the, you know, that's the great hope of Israel, um, that God um, will be their God and they will be his people and he will come and dwell with them. Um, so, again, if we're, if we're thinking just about um, the redemptive purpose as well, um, one of the ways that we've read our way through Revelation is to think in terms of past and a present and a future for, for the, from the perspective of the readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of a past, there, there is a, a looking back element that we've seen right through this story, looking back to Jesus' finished work on the cross and everything that's accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a present encouragement too where the church is encouraged to um, overcome and stay strong and um, continue to proclaim the gospel and withstand persecution because in the end there will be a um, a reward and that conquest and the victory of Jesus' kingdom, of the kingdom of the Lamb, won't come about through brute force or military strength, but it, but it will come about by literally the shedding of blood and the enduring of suffering. And that's how that's how um, the kingdom's going to go forward. But now we're at this last stage where the where the focus has really moved from. Um, uh, reflecting on things that have been accomplished or encouraging the church in the present to really looking towards this hope of when God will come and dwell with men Mm -hmm. at the end of the age. Um, So theologically you can think about we're now at the stage of God's promise to come and be with human beings, that he'll dwell with them, um, which is quite amazing. Um, okay, let's start looking at, at oh, I was just I was just going to point out how it recalls um, Paul's language in um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, where um, Paul talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. So that idea, um, it it really sums up the the point that we've been making initially is that right at the heart of this vision of a new creation Mm -hmm. is the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he's accomplished it. It's by him Mm -hmm. and it's, it's for him. That, that it's about establishing a rule of the of the lamb um, with with his people mm. um, by him and for him and it's also through him um, so in every way Jesus is right at the heart of what's going on here um, so if we start looking at the text the first thing that's really interesting about the passage is the description of the new heaven and the new earth 
Um, what's quite interesting in this chapter is sometimes what's not there or what you wouldn't expect. So um, let me just flick in my Bible. I should have had this open to Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So again, um, I think one of the things that's really significant is uh, the fact that there's no longer any sea. So, so John has this vision of a new heaven and a new earth, um, and we'll see new, the new heaven and the new earth um, come together. Um, as we progress. But what do we make of this idea that there's no sea? Where have we seen the symbolism of the sea through the book of Revelation? Can you recall any moments where the sea's been a significant sort of metaphor or picture for things? The picture of the throne room where the sea is before the throne and it's clear as glass or yeah. something? Yeah, that's right. So in Chapter 4, I think it was Chapter 4, yeah, that picture of a calm, perfectly calm sea. Um, and we talked back then about um, the sea being a symbol of sort of uh, through the Old Testament of the raging of the nations, sort of this tumultuous, chaotic humanity. Uh, and it's often used as a picture of sort of rebellious hu humanity, and the, the powers behind uh, rebellious humanity, and you see in chapter four this sea um, calm and and completely at peace, just emphasising that by by Jesus' work, yeah. um, you you have a humanity that's now conquered and perfectly pacified, mm -hmm. um, that, and and all of that tumult and raging and stormy sea has ceased, and we see beasts thrown up out of the sea in Daniel, but but again um, in Revelation as well. Why no sea now? Well, I think that what John's doing is um, identifying something that's actually really, really profound. This sea represents humanity sort of in its independence from God, separate, um, defined separately from God's life. And the fact that there's no sea anymore, I think, is a, a really significant relational point. The point is humanity is now no longer defined separately from God's own life. There's not a separate space for, for humanity independent of who God is and his life with human beings. So there's no, there's no possibility in this new heaven and new earth, I think the message is, there's no possibility of pursuing a sort of separate course for humanity where they're acting independently or, um, yeah, independently from God in that sort of way. Um, does that make sense, do you think? Yep, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we see, we see um, you know, in the, in the age that we, that we live in and the, in the age of... Uh, the gospel going out and the, the age of the church, that, that that shared life with God. It's not as though um, it, it's, a, it's a picture that we have to be careful with because we're not saying that now our life is completely separate 
from God and one day it won't be. Mm. Um, our life is joined to God's life. That's the whole point of, of what Jesus has done. He's brought us into, into God's life. Mm. But how we experience it now is by faith. So that is we receive the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And the language of the New Testament is human beings become a temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, and you see language um, in Colossians, for example, of our life hid with Christ in God. That, that, that idea is our life is with God. We can't see it yet or experience it in that face-to-face way, but we believe by faith that we're ruling with him, that we're um, participating in his life, joined by faith. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, I think what's happening with no sea and the end of the age is we're moving from a life that's defined by faith to one that will be experienced by sight, literally. Um, So rather than um, so much uh, the focus being God dwelling in us, we will literally dwell in God, mm-hmm. that he'll come and dwell on the earth and we'll, we will participate in his life at, as a physical experience. We'll be internal to his life. Mm-hmm. We'll live in the holiness of God's, the God, God's own life, the life of the Father and the Son. Um, and that is, that is to see face to face. That is to um, be taken into um, a new he- heaven and a new earth. I think that that's um, that's what's be- that that's the relational point that no C points towards. Um, the next point I think is incredible. Um, so just read uh, verse two. What happens next in Revelation? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, that's quite an unusual picture, an amazing picture um, that's bringing together two of the great metaphors that we've seen. Uh, they're, they're Old Testament metaphors, but they're meta- metaphors that we've seen through this book so far. Mm-hmm. One, the metaphor of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, mm-hmm. but it's the city itself that's prepared as a bride. So it's bringing together the, all that bride imagery with the New Jerusalem imagery, and we need to work out what's going on here. Um, where's this holy city coming from? Did you pick that up? From he- heaven? Uh, yeah, yeah, coming down com- out of heaven? Yeah, coming from down. God. Yeah, so, so this is the idea of um, um, God. It, it, they're pictures that really explain God coming to dwell with his people, but it reinforces the point that we've just been talking about, which is that idea that we are being human humanity, the new humanity is being taken into God's life in union with God's life in, in a most incredible and profound way. Mm. Let's just think about the two pictures for a second. So we'll start with the easier one. What does the bride represent throughout scriptures? particularly in the New Testament, but we see it in the Old Testament as well. In the New Testament, it represents the church. Yeah, yeah. It's particularly a strong image. And we've seen it, haven't we, in was it chapter 19 where, where the, the wedding feast um, and the bride going to meet the bridegroom? Yeah. It's clearly a picture of the church. 
So this holy city is somehow being prepared as a bride, is, is being connected to God's covenant people who are, 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 the, are the church. What does the holy city or the new Jerusalem represent? Israel. Definitely connected to Israel, like true Israel in that sense. But I think the fact that, that um, two things, the, the, the holiness of the city being emphasised mm. and the fact that, that we're seeing new Jerusalem come out of heaven, I think it's, it's about the promise to Israel that, that, you know, the holy city is holy because it's the place where God dwells. That's what makes Jerusalem holy. Yeah. So I think what's going on here is you've got a picture that represents God dwelling with his people. That's what holy Jerusalem's about. Mm-hmm. You've got a picture of God dwelling with his people being combined with a picture of a people prepared for relationship or life with God. Mm-hmm. And those two things are being weaved together in, in a way that they're indivisible, that mm-hmm. they can't be separated. Mm-hmm. Just read the sentence again because you, you see it when you read it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, so it's the holy city, this place where God dwells, actually being prepared as a bride. So the, the brides become the city in a sense. The bride and the place where God dwells has been joined. Mm-hmm. That's I think that that's what this picture is all about. It's a picture of, um, again, we've been emphasising again and again, what's happening in these last cha- chapters of Revelation, it's all about understanding relationships. Mm-hmm. And this is the most, you know, how could you explain that analytically? It takes beautiful pictures to even make sense of yeah. how this could be possible the breathtaking nature of God dwelling with men and his people being incorporated into his life in this indivisible, united way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's incredibly profound and significant in terms of how God wants us to understand what sharing his life will, or will be like um, in the new heaven and the, uh, the new earth. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's just have a look at a passage that's quite um, significant in relation to understanding this new Jerusalem. The end of Isaiah is really a lot about this this very picture, the idea that there will be a new Jerusalem Mm -hmm. um, that will be, you know, full of joy and delight and no more crying and and it will be a place of blessing and fruitfulness um, lots of imagery that connects back to the original creation and the Garden of Eden we see in these last chapters of Isaiah, um, a place where work won't be toil anymore but it will be joy, a place where um, God and his people will dwell in intimacy. And there's this amazing verse in chapter 65 that says, where God says, before they call, I will answer. So that idea that the the sensitivity between God and His people will be so immediate that that He'll respond before they before His people even ask mm-hmm. or call out to Him. Um, we'll just read a couple of verses, but I'd encourage you to go away and read all of chapter sixty, maybe from sixty onwards, the last 
six chapters of Isaiah are so relevant to what we're looking at today. But we'll just have a look at um, maybe just read verse 17 to 19. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Okay, so you can see um, you can see how how much that parallels the passage in um, Revelation Re- Revelation chapter twenty one. The other thing that I think striking about about these prophetic words is how emotional they are. Mm. Um, could you pick out the emotional language? Like th- this is this is it, it, it's not just a sort of standoffish um, description of something that the oh. prophet's seeing. It, it's going to it's going to the heart of things, God's mm-hmm. heart, but people's heart as well. Mm-hmm. What what are, what's some of the emotional language that you recognised? Joy and rejoicing, delight. Yeah. And then no weeping or crying. Yeah, that, that idea of in, intense joy and de- delight. It's a great word. And, yeah, yeah, that, that sorrow and mourning and grief and all those, those things that have plagued human beings, that there'll be no, no more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other, the other verse that I think is quite interesting is that it talks about that the former things will not be remembered, mm-hmm. nor will they come to mind. So it's the idea that the new heaven and the new earth will be so superior to the one that we have now, mm. that we so superior that we'll hardly even remember mm. what the old was like because the new will be so overwhelming and I, I can't imagine what that's like. Like can you, can you imagine a heaven and earth that's so vivid and so real and where colour and experience and emotion and life and all of those things are so intense that it that it makes the it, it makes the old heaven and the old earth something that you barely remember sort of this shadowy incomplete or you know you, yeah, something less real, and I, I can't. Ima- I can't ima- begin to ma- to imagine. Amazing. Um, let's go back to Revelation then. So, what happens next? A loud voice from the throne says, "Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God." It will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Yeah, good. Well, we've sort of talked about that, so I reckon we can keep keep pressing on. So, um, the the next the next bit that, that perhaps we haven't talked about. Um, you hear Jesus' voice, it is done on the Alpha and the Omega. We've talked about that. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. So, again, that's a picture of um, that, that, again, comes out of the Old Testament 
um, and will be returned to in the next chapter, in chapter 22, this water of life that actually flows from God's throne um, mm. and actually makes the whole city fruitful and everyone, all the nations will come to drink from um, this water, this life-giving water, which is his life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this. Now, that's clearly an encouragement to the churches in the present that are called to just um, uh, persevere. persevere. And it recalls um, the language of um, Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, doesn't it, with the yeah. addresses to the churches. And then there's a reminder that any anyone unholy, and there's a big list there in verse 8, um, there's no place for them in terms of the new heaven and the new earth. That is, there's no relation. If you, un, Unholy living isn't going to be sharing in the life of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we've talked um, about um, the experience of the second death and what that means. Okay, let's, let's move on because the next thing that happens that's really interesting is that... Um, one an angel steps forward and says to John, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb." Mm-hmm. And then, then you get a description of John being carried away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, where he's shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What's interesting about that little section? Um, the angel says, I'll show you a bride, the wife of the lamb, but then he sees a mountain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it, this, this has happened a lot in Revelation and perhaps we haven't picked up on it enough. But one of the, um, one of the things that happens consistently is that John will hear something, mm. but then he'll see something that's quite distinct. Mm. So, so what he'll hear from the what it what, what like you're saying what he hears from the angel is, um, I will show you this the bride, and then the thing that he sees is the holy city Jerusalem. Mm. And if you bring together what what he hears, and then what he sees, that's the key to working out. Um, the picture here, and it's a picture we've begun to talk about already, how the bride and the holy city are being brought together. The other really significant thing about what's beginning to happen here is this is clearly um, structured in terms of the literature and, and the way the vision is playing out, it's clearly structured on Ezekiel's final vision mm. of Jerusalem um, in the last Eight chapters of his book in the book of Ezekiel. Now we won't go go back and read the introduction, but the, it, um, in Ezekiel itself. But if you go back and read Ezekiel forty, you'll see an angel turns up, speaks to Ezekiel, takes him to a high mountain. He sees the city, like the pattern is exactly mm. is exactly the same. And then he's encouraged to go and measure um, in in the case of Ezekiel mm. the temple. Mm. John here. Um, will end up measuring the city, and that's really significant um, as well. Mm-hmm. What, we're, what we're about to see in the second half of this chapter is really, really interesting. I think one of the most interesting sections of the entire book because what you have 
in, in this last little section that's beginning to unlock for us what life in the new heaven and the new earth will be like in terms of relationship, you see a profound reworking of the Jewish framework for thinking. Um, and it's all about being able to uh, understand the prophecy in Ezekiel mm. and then read the material in Revelation that it pa- clearly parallels. Mm. But what you see between Ezekiel and Revelation is that there's some things that are included, there's some things that are missing, mm. and there's some things that are transformed. And if you can put together what's included, what's mm. missing, and what's transformed, you begin to understand the point that John's the startling points that John's wanting to make about what this new life is going to be like. So I, I think that, that what we need to do now um, is go back and have a little bit of a look at Ezekiel because if we can understand Ezekiel's picture mm. and what's going on there, when we come to Revelation, we'll be able to quickly recognise what's included, what's missing, what's transformed. Okay, so the the book of Ezekiel, just I think it would be helpful to say a couple of things just to give you a little bit of context for what we're going to look at because we're going to dip in and out of it a little bit. Um, Ezekiel's prophecies are really about uh, looking towards the horror of uh, the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem mm. and the prospect that um, God's people are, are under profound judgment and they're going to go into exile. Mm. And so um, a few of the most significant chapters in the, in the first um, half of the book is um, chapters 8 to 11 that that really um, he really focuses on the, the horror of the destruction of the temple and what that means for, for um, the Jews. Um, and, and there's this, this picture of the temple being destroyed and the glory of God departing and leaving the temple. And it's like um, God's presence is no longer going to be with his people. And that is the that is the horror of exile. That is what this judgment is about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's ultimately an encouragement. It's an encouraging book written to um, the people who will ultimately be in exile mm-hmm. in Babylon, encouraging a covenant people um, to look forward to. Um, a, a restored community and a relationship with Yahweh that that will be restored, and the, uh, with the prospect of them returning from exile. Mm-hmm. And so, the last section of the book is all about encouraging encouraging um, the Jew, faithful Jews, the covenant people of God, to. Um, return to the land and restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and and it's it's a it's a really it's a call to spiritual renewal um, for the people of God and the, the last eight chapters um, 
this call to, and it's not just call, about a, a spiritual renewal that's physical, that is return to this place and build the temple and start life again. It's a very much a call to holiness, that we need to live as God's people in God's land the way he calls us to. And so it's, a, it's very much a call to um, the Jewish people to understand the God that you live with, take seriously his holiness Live in relationship with him in a holy way. That's really what's going on in these last chapters. And there's this strange, you know, often if you read it and, and not really understand what's going on, it just all seems very strange. But there's four chapters where an angel gives um, Ezekiel a measuring rod and he goes and measures every little bit of the temple. And you think, what what is the point of all that? Yeah. Well, what's... This measuring of the temple is is a relational idea. It's about all the measuring that's taking place is about helping the Jews understand the relation that they have with Yahweh, the one who dwells in the temple. Um, so let's ha- let's have a bit of a look at some of what's going on in these chapters. So. Like we said, it's all about the, the, the idea of holiness. Holiness is the key idea here, Th- that if God would restore his presence with his people, that, that the temple will be a holy place once again and, it, and the Jews will have to dwell with God in holiness. So first of all, let's have a look at um, Ezekiel 43, verse 4 and 5. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, so in the context of the whole story of judgment and exile and God, God's presence departing, what's so significant here? God's presence has returned. Right. The glory of the Lord entering the temple, that God's presence has returned. And that has all sorts of implications for how God's people need to live with him. So skip forward a few verses and read verse 10 and 11. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. So what's going on? <laughs> Weird. What do you make of that, Han? Why are they? If they are ashamed of their sins. Show them the design of the temple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's some things to see here. So literally the angel saying to Ezekiel, um, describe the temple to them that they may be ashamed of their sins. Well, in other words, what does the temple point out to, Israel, to Jews who are, who, who are taking God seriously? Well, let's have a think about the design of the temple because this is what happens. It starts with the measuring of the outer courts and then it moves to the inner courts. Yep. Now, when you, the whole principle of, of Israel's temple is 
as you move towards the centre, what are you moving closer and closer to? God's presence. God's presence. So God dwells in his temple in a... There's a room set apart that's God's dwelling place called the Holy of Holies that's right at the heart of the temple. Mm. Who can go in there? The priest that's been consecrated. The high priest can go in there once a year with blood on the Day of Atonement. Don't go out. Don't go in any other day and don't go in without the blood. Um, And they even used to tie a rope to the high priest's leg just in, just in case they died in there because no one else was allowed in and they'd at least be able to drag him out. Um, that, that's how serious and holy yeah. this place was. There was nothing in this room except for the tabernacle and the, and the one high priest one day a year would go in there and sprinkle blood as an atoning a sacrifice to cover over the sins of Israel. Other than that, no one goes in there, and it's covered by a curtain, and and that's um, a place set apart for God's holiness that's not for human mm. eyes. You can't even look in there. Um, yeah. Then there's an inner temple that's only for the priests. If you're not a priest, you can't go in there. Mm. Then there's an outer t- outer courts for where Jews can go, and even further out, there's there's places that um, Gentiles. Gentiles can go go as well. But as you're getting closer and closer, the whole the whole principle is separation. Mm. The God who's dwelling with Israel is wanting to make the point to Israel that I am not like you. Mm. You're sinful mm. and I'm holy. And the way that we're going to live together is that you need to take um, separation seriously. Mm. Does that make sense? So, so the temple is, is a whole architectural lesson in mm. the separation between God and his people. Mm. So that's what's going on here. When, when the angel says, describe the temple that they may be ashamed of their sin, what, what the angel is saying is describe the temple so, so that Israel or the Jews are completely aware of how holy and separate God is mm. from them who are unholy and sinful. Mm-hmm. Because if we're going to live together, Jews need to understand who they are mm. and they also need to understand who God is. Mm-hmm. And that's that. does that make sense? That's what's going on here. So yeah. if you go through these chapters now, you'll have um, sections where Ezekiel recalls all the offerings that have to be offered, mm. all the sacrifices, all the rules there are for the priests. There's even there's even descriptions of where the community can live mm. in relation to the temple and how they have to leave a buffer around it, again pointing to separation. Mm. The, the whole point is we have a holy God dwelling with us now. Don't get too close. Don't mm. overstep the boundaries. That's what's going on here. Have a have a read of skip forward to um, chapter forty four verse six to nine. Say to the rebellious house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says: Enough of your detestable practices, O house of Israel! In addition to all your other detestable practices, you brought foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh into my sanctuary desecrating my temple while you offered me food, fat, and blood. 
and you broke my covenant. Instead of carrying out your duty in regard to my holy things, you put others in charge of my sanctuary. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh is to enter my sanctuary, not even the foreigners who live among the Israelites. Okay, so again, just emphasizing, uh, don't bring unholy things into my presence. Mm. Take seriously. I'm in charge of how you can approach me. This is what God's saying. I, I dwell with you and I set the conditions on which you you can come into my presence or approach me and the the desecration that's happened bringing foreigners and people uncircumcised in heart and flesh into the sanctuary is being condemned Mm. and and it's a clear words being this is a word of renewal it's all about oh we won't do that anymore Mm. no foreigners or people even if they live in israel will be permit will be permitted Mm. It's and very different to like, like when Jesus comes, like he doesn't, he's not concerned with separation because nothing can desecrate him, his holiness. Yeah. Like flows out. Yeah. Why, why is it so different? I think if we, I think, I think as we answer the question in Revelation, see, it's the difference that Jesus makes. That's the whole point. He's a walking, and he's he's like a walking temple. Mm. Um, and that's how it. That, that's how he he's in a sense understanding who he is in bringing the kingdom. Mm. That's going to take us into a whole different discussion. Okay, but it's a it's a really it's a really. Um, profound idea. Once we get to Revelation, we will answer that question in a sense, I think. Um, if you, if we keep going into verse 40, chapter 44, sorry, a bit further, it even talks about um, certain gates of the city will be permanently shut hmm. to, to preserve um, holiness. So let's sum up some of the things that we're seeing about holiness. In terms of this Jewish worldview, what does holiness mean? Well, I think you could say these things. One, it's an understanding that God's presence, Mm. God accommodates to Israel by allowing his presence to dwell in a contained way in the temple. Now, you can't contain God, and Israel and the prophets fully understood this. Mm. But for the sake of Israel, Mm. God allowed his presence to dwell in the holy of holies um, among his people. But if that was to be the case, then uh, keeping the law, sacrifice, maintaining distance, proper separation, following all the requirements, was was necessary to maintain relationship mm-hmm. because you have an unholy, sinful, wicked people dwelling with a holy God or living in living next to a holy God, and that creates enormous problems for Israel. Mm. It's a very very difficult thing to live as a sinful people with a holy God, and and that's the that's Israel's. Um, that's the story of Israel in lots of ways. God is other, totally different um, to, to wicked human beings. 
And the way you maintain relationship is you better keep things separate that have to be separate. Mm. Okay, so you get chapter after chapter of Ezekiel measuring this, measuring that. It's all about emphasising these points that we're talking about. Now let's look at the amazing thing where John starts to measure in Revelation 21. So... um, First of all, um, where are we? Verse 12. Yeah. So he sees this this holy city. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, and it had great high walls with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um. And what's being described here that's different to Ezekiel? What? I don't know. Well, what is Ezekiel? What is Ezekiel's? uh, Those last eight chapters zoom in on the temple. The temple. This isn't the temple. Mm. This is the city. Mm-hmm. So there's something that we need to understand here, first of all. So how's the city being described? That it shone with the glory of God. Yep, good. So it's shot, it's shot. It's all about, it's imagery that's about the city's beauty, its mm. purity, its splendor, mm. gold, jewels, glass, all of these um, things um, uh, emphasizing how spec- spectacular the glory of this city is. It shone like a precious jewel. What about the walls? There's symbolism going on here. 12 gates. Mm. So, on these entry points, so the, these are the things that people would be reminded about. Every time they went in and out of the city gates, what are they seeing written on these gates? The names of the tribes of Israel. Right. Verse 13, they're seeing, or 12, they're seeing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if we go down a bit further, there's walls. The walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What's going on here? Uh, it's both the apostles of Jesus and the tribes of Israel. Yeah, so so this is an amazing picture. This city is bringing together the covenant people of God, isn't it? The people of the first covenant, the Abraham's covenant, mm. um, are being brought together, uh, represented by the 12 tribes of Israel, um, and they, their, their names are over the gates, with the 12 apostles of the Lamb who represent the new covenant people of God. So here you have a picture of the city of God, um, that's bringing together, like we're t- we've been talking about in relationship, one covenant people of God, um, faithful Israel and faith, the faithful church have been incorporated into, into one picture of one city. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's really, really significant. Then the angel talked with me 
who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold. So this is very much like Ezekiel. But instead of saying measure the temple, he says measure the city, its gates, and its walls. Okay, that's a really important point. Why is John measuring the city rather than the temple? Well, let's read a little bit more and we'll see something. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. So Mm -hmm. picture a a square. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That's huge. Um, And its width and and as wide and and high as it is long. Mm. So what are you picturing? A cube. Okay, so this is the first extraordinary point about this city. Mm-hmm. The city is a perfect cube. Mm-hmm. That's a weird city. <laughs> as high as it is wide and long. Yeah. So it, very intentionally, the measuring that that John's doing is wanting to point out to readers that we have a cube here. Why? Well, the key is in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Horatio. Chapter what? 1 Kings 6, oh. 19 and 20. Okay. So what what we have here is this is the chapter about Solomon building the temple, right? Yeah. So he's talking about now, well, you, you see, see if you can pick up what he's talking about. Mm. Um, he prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. So what do we call that? What does that come to be known as? The Holy of Holies. This is the Holy of Holies. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long. 20 wide and 20 high. Mm. So what are the dimensions of the Holy of Holies? A cube. A perfect cube. Now that is the only part of the temple that's Mm. a perfect cube. Go back to Revelation and have Mm. a think about what is going on here. The city is a perfect cube. Mm -hmm. What point is John making? Now the whole city is the Holy of Holies. Right, the whole city has become the Holy of Holies. Mm. Why? God's presence is in is is not separate anymore from where his people dwell. Yeah, the, the, it's not now a hidden away room inside a temple complex that people can't get to. Mm. Um, his presence is not contained in one little place, in one little temple. It now fills the whole city. The mm. whole city is now full of the life and presence of the living living God. Mm. It's like the whole it's like all of the new creation in a sense has become the holy of holies. Um let's keep reading a bit more cuz it gets more amazing. Um I'm skipping down a couple of verses. It talks about um, there's there's a whole lot of description here of um, the walls and what they're made of and the materials, etc. But I'm interested, uh, and it goes through a whole list of precious stones. Mm. Um, um, The streets were of pure gold. But look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city 
because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Mm. So this, this, this is the key difference, isn't it, between Ezekiel and the vision that we have in John. Mm. Ezekiel was completely preoccupied with the temple. In John's vision, there is no temple in the new heaven and the new earth. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Mm. So what's going on? What does this mean? Why don't we need a t- why is there no need for a temple anymore? Isn't a temple meant to be like a sign that God God will one day dwell with his people? And so now you don't need a sign because he he is dwelling with his people? I like how you're thinking. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely think that, that that's relevant. Mm. I think two things are happening. One is uh, one is that we you you already mentioned before. Um, previously, God's presence had been contained in one place, and now it's uncontained. It's mm. it's it's that God's life has expanded into all of the city which which really means all of the new heaven and the new the new earth mm. um, his his glory fills everything mm. but there's something there's another reason for a temple that's not to do with god it's to do with people they're wicked and need to be separate right remember what ezekiel what the prophet what the angel said to ezekiel tell them about the temple mm. that they might be ashamed of their sin and know that they're sinners. And it, yeah. if there's no temple, what does that imply about the people? They don't need to be reminded of their sin. Right. They don't need to be reminded of their sin anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no need for separation because God's people are holy. Mm-hmm. They don't need to stay apart. Mm-hmm. This is the most beautiful, wonderful thing about the future that, that we can look forward to with God. There, there will come a time when holiness has nothing to do with separation. Mm. In a sense, it's true now by faith mm. because, it, you, know, you know, all the imagery about the curtains being ripped, where, where we can enter into the holy of holies. Remember that passage that we've looked at in Hebrews time and again. We don't come to a mountain where we need to be scared and afraid. We can come right into the presence. Mm. But it's by faith. There will be a time where it's by sight. And we won't need a temple Mm. because holiness won't be about separation. It'll be about the reverse. Mm. It'll be about union. Mm -hmm. You You won't define holiness by what you need to keep separate from, from, you'll define holiness by who you're in relationship with. Mm. And that will be how we experience life physically in in our new glorious bodies. Um, That's what it is for the uncontained glory of God to be fully revealed. Um, we, We don't need a temple because there'll be nothing impure in the city, including us. Amazing. So you see all sorts of um, uh, implications for this in in Revelation. Um, I'll I'll just skip down to one of the main ones. Um, 
look at how this fits with what we're talking about. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So that, that open access, the, in, in contrast to Ezekiel, the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. So remember in Ezekiel it was, oh, you brought foreigners and people who are defiled into my presence. And now the glory and honour of the nations will, will be able to enter into this city. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's an amazing picture of holiness completely redefined by shared life, by intimacy. Um, what, what makes us holy is that we're connected to his life. Our names are written in the book of life. That's what that means. Now, it's true now um, by faith, but one day it'll be true by sight. One of the things that's also extraordinary, just to finish off um, chapter 21, mm. um, the, the imagery around light is quite interesting in the, this last section as well. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its, um, and the lamb is its lamp. Mm. What do you make of that? What does it remind you of? Um, I don't know if this is what you want me to say, but it reminds me of Genesis where... yeah. God creates the sun and moon and stars and says they're a sign to mark the seasons and the like to point to or, the order of God, the yeah. way he set up the world. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you go right back to that Genesis account, Genesis chapter 1, the order of creation is let there be light is mm. the first thing. And light is the thing that actually illuminates and allows you to see everything else, see mm. the glory of everything else. Mm. And now we've got a picture of um, light illuminating the glory of the holy city and of the people in mm. it and everything about it. But the light itself will be God's life. Um, we won't need uh, external created lights because we'll have the uncreated light of God's own life illuminating and and revealing mm. um, um, the glory of things. And when we're talking about the glory of things, that is things will be seen for what they truly are. That's what glory is all about. Mm. And so you'll see things for their, for their true worth, for their true relation. Yeah. Um, it reminds me too, again, and it's significant that it's John who's saying this, if you go to the beginning of John's gospel, a very, he picks up on the same idea in chapter 1. Verse 3 says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Um, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Yeah. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Just, just that idea that... Um, that bringing together of light and life and the, um, revealing human beings for who they truly are, that idea of glory. Mm. Yeah, this, the last few um, verses of chapter 21 
um, like my main takeaway is about glory because the glory of God shines throughout the city and gives it light. And then also in verse 26, the glory and honour of the nations are brought into the city. Yeah. And so it's just this picture of God being seen for who he truly is and the people being seen for who they truly are yeah. in all their glory. And it's just this beautiful picture of intimacy of God and his people. Yeah. Yeah. I, um. That idea that light illuminates but reveals and fills. Um, I, I really like what you said about the nations as well because one of the things we've seen through the book of Revelation is the nations are often under judgment. Yeah. They're rebellious. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that it, it, in the very end there's a place for nations mm. in the new heaven and the new earth, redeemed nations. Mm. Um, and we have seen pictures of Get people gathered around the throne from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And, you know, it's something that's in God's mind that the nations would finally be revealed for who they truly are, the glory of the different cultures and races and languages and stories um, yeah. that make a nation a nation. There's a place for those nations um, entering into the, the holy city mm. and sharing in the life of the great king. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, let's just have one look at another passage from Isaiah chapter 60 that that looks towards some of this, um, the role of the nations in terms of the glory of Zion. Um if you look at chapter 60 from Isaiah, the, fir- the first um, 11 verses are really interesting. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedah's flock will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the leader, the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold, to the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendour. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favour I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. So that's, isn't that an extraordinary picture of restored relationship? Exactly the mm-hmm. thing that you're saying, that, that these nations are going to um, 
relate to God rightly, relate to the great king. And it's a picture of, you know, all of the nations from different places around the, the, the earth bringing um, tribute and bringing homage and, and coming in, even making sacrifices. It's the idea they're participating in everything that belongs to Israel now belongs to the nations as well. And just that um, bringing of praise and all their prosperity. It's, a, it's an amazing chapter, great picture that really um, reflects those last few verses in Revelation chapter 21. So chapter 22, um, the, fir- the first six verses, um, continues our picture of this heavenly city that's come come to the earth the new heaven and the new earth and and we re- we really now will go to the heart of the the heart of the city mm. um and these um the the pictures that John presents us with at the beginning of chapter 22 strongly recall the original creation story so right at the very mm. end of the the age when we have the new heaven and the new earth um John's returning to images that began way back in the Garden of Eden with the uh, with the original creation, um, and also he continues to progress the parallels with um, Ezekiel's prophecy. Um, so Ezekiel forty seven and forty eight in particular become really important for this last little section as well. So we'll have a look at a couple of those things just before we start having a look at. Um, the river of life and all that it means. Yeah. Let's just remind ourselves of a, of a couple of things from the original creation story, because having this in our hands will help us understand what's going on um, and what's so amazing about God's intention for life with his people in mm. this new city. So in the original creation, Hannah, can you tell us, what were some of the features of how God lived with men originally? What do you mean? when? Like what was it like for Adam and Eve? God walked the garden with, with Adam and Eve? Yep, walked and talked. Um, but, but, what's the but there? He wasn't there all the time, was His he? His presence came and and went. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a case of his presence. Mm. He would turn up, um, share life, converse, walk with them in the garden, um, mm. and it was great. But in terms of intimacy, it's made clear that he did. God came and went. Yeah. God's presence came and went. Um, what else? What else was life like for Adam and Eve in the original garden? They were instructed to take care of the plants and animals and. Work the land. Yeah, good. So, so there was words that they were given. Some were, some were, um, uh, and they were words about how they should live. Yeah. Um, in this place that God had provided for them, and there was words of blessing about, you know, um, multiply and be fruitful and work. Um, yeah. Um, work the land and I can't remember the exact words off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Um, mm-hmm. um, but there was also words of warning too, wasn't there? It's like you can eat of every tree in the garden but don't eat of the tree mm-hmm. of the knowledge of good and evil. 
there were two trees at the centre, the tree of life and the tree. Right, that's an important thing. So in, in, in terms of the the uh, layout of this garden, we, we're picturing a garden where right at the centre were these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. And one of those trees um, was open to them, the tree of life, but the, but the other one, um, they were told not not to eat from it. Mm-hmm. Why? What? What else is going on in terms of relationships in this garden that that's significant? Um, Adam and Minnie relate to each other. Yeah. What could we say about that? Um. There's intimacy. Yeah, definitely. You know, those those amazing verses, um, Adam had no suitable helper um, and he caused Adam to fall into a, a deep sleep and then God took uh, made a woman out of the rib he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, um, again, in the language of magnificent poetry, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my ble- flesh, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So the whole understanding of marriage comes out of God's creative purpose in creating um, the woman to be the companion of the man. Mm. Now that's quite significant when we get to Revelation because we're seeing the true meaning of marriage in terms of God's mind, Mm. at the end of the age, what's the true meaning? That people were created to be the companion of God. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 um, that because it's part of what I think what it means to be made relationally in God's image, but you have, you have an understanding at the end of the end of the age that God's intention was to bind himself to his people in, in marriage, bride and like a bride and a bridegroom, mm. and that human marriage actually reflected that reality, not yeah. the other way, not the other way around. If you get what I'm saying, so there's some of the there, there's there's some of the pictures. One of the other significant things in Genesis chapter two, I'll just read you one other verse. Um, in the centre of the garden, yeah, there was all types of trees good for food in the middle of the garden with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we've talked about that already but um genesis chapter 2 verse 10 also points out a river watered the garden watering the garden flowed from eden and from there it was separated into four headwaters and then it gives you the names of these four headwaters. So you're picturing two great trees and a mighty river that waters the garden. Um, Keep that in mind when we start to have a look um, at um, Revelation. So we've got a picture, haven't we, from Genesis of shared life being about God providing everything that this man and woman need and blessing them and walking with God was about um, relating to him um, intimately but also about trusting in his word. It was a life by faith. You, tr- you trusted in his word that when he said that there was good things to eat, you would 
you know, follow through and go and eat them. And when he said don't eat that, you would follow through and not do that that as well. So there was an element of faith that was required in terms of living with God in his creation. Now, what we have at the very end of the age, it is a picture of restored Eden. So I, I, that's important to recognise. Clearly, um, there's images here taken straight from that go all the way back to Genesis. Mm. But there's a sense in which the picture at the end of the age totally transcends and surpasses anything experienced by Adam and Eve. Mm. And so we'll be able to pick up on some of the things that are about um, the restoration of things that um, have been destroyed by the fall or disfigured by the fall or whatever relationally, but we're going to move way beyond um, what Adam and Eve ever experienced in this new heaven and the new earth. Mm. And we've seen it in a sense already. Um, In terms of the Hebrew worldview, a a garden's great Mm. and can be perfect, but a city city is a much superior uh, way of life than living in a garden. Yeah. And so we've moved from a garden to, to the holy city, Jerusalem. That sort of reflects the point we're making. So let's have a bit of a look at Revelation 22 and just um, look at these last few elements in this amazing picture of the new heaven and the new earth. Mm-hmm. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of a great street of the city. So what an amazing picture. The river actually flows out of the throne. So what, is that, what does that reflect about the river as a metaphor? Well, a river is like a life-giving source. So the life-giving source comes from the throne, which is like the centre of God's rule Yeah, life. Yeah, his rule and life is, is it, yeah. So it, I couldn't say it better myself. Oh, sorry. Um, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. This is another great chapter where it's worth actually trying to draw it perhaps or at least picture what's going on here. That's quite an unusual verse. What's that saying? The tree of life. It's like one tree but it stands on both sides of the river. Yeah. So I don't know if it, it – I don't know if it's just so enormous that it spans across both banks of the river, mm. but clearly here we only have one tree, the tree of life. Mm. Um, there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the new heaven and the new earth. Hold that thought because we'll need to come back to it. Um, it bears 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. So what's being emphasised about this tree? Very fruitful. Unbelievably, amazingly fruitful. Um, it's, It's clearly an enormous tree and amazingly fruitful. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Mm. So, again, that restorative work, redemptive work, um, no longer will there be any curse. Now, what does that refer to? 
the curse given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? Yeah, I think that that, that reflects back on exactly what you're talking about. The, the curse that um, resulted from Adam and Eve disobeying, their disobedience. And one of the main things about that, that curse was um, Adam and Eve were denied access to the garden and access to the tree of life. That that was the that was the worst thing about the curse. They was they were in a sense separated from being able to eat of the tree of life. That is, mm. um, metaphorically, I suppose, participate intimately in God's in God's own life. Um, what is what does it mean that there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That that's absent. And that there is no longer any curse. What what do you think? What's being pointed out here? Like there's no risk of Eden 2.0 where humans make the same mistake and fall. Yeah. Again. Yeah, I think so. That that in this new heaven and the new earth, where human beings live uh, intimately in union with God in new bodies, fully restored, evil is not a possible alternative choice anymore. Mm. Um, There's no longer a possibility of rejecting God's word. Mm. Now, this raises interesting questions because, um, well, one of the questions that that you might then ask is, well, are human beings free? Mm. Well, this is a really um, actually quite a profound point because it all depends what you mean by freedom. Yeah. We have a very wicked fallen view of what freedom is. The, the opportunity to choose between good and evil is not freedom. Mm. What is free? What is it? What is, we, you know, in the world, um, in our fallenness, we think of freedom as something commensurate with independence, mm. the possibility of operating independently. But that's not what freedom is at all. Mm. We're going to experience freedom like the Holy Son is free. Mm. So Jesus doesn't go around choosing between good and evil. That's not, that's not what freedom <laughs> yeah. means to yeah. him. Um, freedom is is not about being able to choose between. Free, freedom is to be wholly consumed with God's life. That is to be truly free. Mm. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? Yeah, because if if choosing sin is choosing slavery, then the opportunity to choose evil is is the opportunity to forego freedom. That's right. That's ex- exactly right. So a picture of complete freedom, what, what, what does it mean to be? Imagine I can't, we can't begin again. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. <laughs> but can you, can you begin to imagine what it will be like to be, to be free, to be just wholly consumed with God's life, mm. just to be totally that that would just totally fill everything about you. That that's imagine imagine how empowering and freeing and 
how, oh, how amazing that would be. That is what freedom is. Mm. Freedom is not choosing between. It's to be free like Jesus is free. And that's the freedom that we'll have in the new heaven and the new earth. What an amazing, what an amazing thought. Let's just have a quick read of one passage from Ezekiel um, just to finish because it's um, very significant for the picture that we're seeing here. So this is Ezekiel 47, um, the first nine verses, where Ezekiel has a similar picture of a river. One to nine. Yeah. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Okay. It, it, again, can you see the parallels with the with the picture of the river mm. in Revelation? Um, what an amazing picture of this amazing watercourse that just gets deeper and deeper and mm. bigger and bigger. And if you know your geography of Israel, what's being described is a river that flows right down into the Dead Sea, which is the saltiest sea in the world, and nothing can live in it. And the point being made in the prophecy is um, it, uh, this New Jerusalem, the river that will come out of the New Jerusalem will just flood the Dead Sea with fresh water and make it fresh again and, and it will be teeming with life. Mm. So it's this amazing picture of, um, it's like you, you were saying to me off the record before about <laughs> resurrection life being a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. This is a really good example of it, of something dead just being brought to abundant life mm. in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, so the Dead Sea will be full of fish and birds and etc. an amazing picture. Um, we're running out of time. Let's just uh, quickly... Uh, finish off the last little bit. So the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. So again, um, that's 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 John's way in Revelation to talk about the Father and the Son, isn't it? Mm. And his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Mm. So we've seen these pictures before. That, that idea that that um, the covenant people of God will be priests and kings. 
um, there'll be things to do in this new mm. heaven and the new earth. Um, and the na- his name will be on their foreheads. That is, uh, our life with God will just fill our thoughts and we'll live face to face. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So, again, that bringing together those two thoughts of serving and reigning, that Mm. is kings and priests, Mm. we've seen that over and over again and this reign will be forever and ever. Um, Recalls passages like 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Um, okay, then th- there's there's a final little section where um, uh, John addresses um, his audience, these churches in Asia Minor, one last time. And what's really interesting here is the voice. The voice is, begins as the voice of the angel. It becomes the voice of John. But unmistakably, it ultimately becomes the voice of Jesus, and Jesus becomes the last voice these um, these churches in Asia Minor will hear from. Mm. So, behold, I am coming soon. So it's clearly Jesus' voice. Mm. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And then John speaks. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. Um, and when I heard, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing me. But he said, "Don't do it. Worship God." So there's the angel's voice. Mm. And then the vo- then the angel said, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near." Now that's significant. We haven't got time to look at it. But if you go back to the end of Daniel's prophecy, mm. the last thing that the prophet says, uh, sorry, the angel says to Daniel is, "Seal this up. It's for a later time." Mm. Now you have the reverse, the angel saying, do not seal this up. The implication being is we're right at that time. We're near the end. So it's encouraging the church to recognise and live with urgency. This is what this last section is largely about. Take seriously that Jesus is coming back soon, that these things are just around the corner. Um. And that, that's emphasised again where, where we hear Jesus' voice in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, he says again. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And he says again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So again, emphasising um, to this church, the end times is not about a chronology that you need to work out. Mm. It's about a relationship you need to take seriously. Mm. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So, again, the sense of that verse is present tense. And this is, again, something that we were talking about before, Hannah. Mm. Um one of the things, well, you say what you were saying before about one of the things that struck you about the promise of this life at the end of the age. What were you saying to me? About Ezekiel. You, well, you were saying, you, you were talking about the idea that um, we have it now. Yeah, it struck me when we were reading about the description of the Holy of Holies in Ezekiel, about how serious and careful they were about God's presence and entering into it and just the thought that that presence 
it lives in us so freely. Yeah. When back then only the high priest could enter in one day and they had to hold the blood and yeah. Now that presence, that exact same presence lives in us. Yeah. And, and, and that, that's the point. I think that's the point in terms of what Jesus is saying here. The life that we're called to live on the earth now as we await the mm. final consummation at the end of the age is not a partial life in the sense that God hasn't given us a little bit of himself and there's more to come. Um, the reality of our life is that we've received everything, mm. but it's by faith. Yeah, there's, so, there's the freedom now to live as we are, as if we are already in the city. That's right. That that's right. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, in that sense, is is a foretaste. It's 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 living the presence of the future. Yeah. Of our future. So blessed are those who wash their robes. That's something that you do now. That is, you partake in Jesus' life. You receive grace. Mm. Um, and for those who do, you can eat from the tree of life now. You, you, in a sense, you can go through the gates into the city now. Um, it continues, I'm skipping down. Um, Jesus reminds them that, that this testimony of his, and it's his testimony, it's his story mm. of, his, of his life and his work and his reign from the perspective of heaven is for the churches, to encourage the churches and, um, again, you get more I am language. Um, if you go back and study John's gospel, there's lots and lots of these identifiers, titles that Jesus mm. takes to himself that help us understand who he is in relation to us. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Again, something that he said before. The spirit and the bride say come. Now, that's really interesting. What's going on here? It's like God and the church merged. Yeah, time. yeah, yes. And what we have, remember, remember one of the things we've been saying right through these prophecies is there's a perspective from heaven and there's a perspective from the earth. Oh, yeah. So the perspective from heaven, we've heard twice, behold, I'm coming soon. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's Jesus speaking, and it's like the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Bride, that is the church, are speaking in unison with Mm. the Son, inviting people to come. Um, Let him who hears say come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Again, present. That water of life is not something that that we um, have in the in the new in the new age in the new heaven and the new earth and we don't have it now we mm. do by faith come and drink i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book basically he says don't add anything to do it anything to it or take anything away from it god will take away from him his share in the holy city in other words take this seriously as god's word prophetic word, um, as Jesus' testimony. Again, emphasising urgency. Um, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Finishes with John's voice. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. We've done it. We've got to the end.
We might just pray to finish. Um, Lord Jesus, sometimes in our comfortable Australian life, we don't take seriously enough that you're coming soon and you want us to live with urgency in the world. And I'm sorry where I haven't taken seriously enough that urgent call to be ready and that you're coming soon. Thank you for all the ways you've revealed yourself to us through this study of this book. Thank you for all the ways you've blessed Hannah and me with glimpses of your life that um, are going to help us walk with you and live with you. Thanks for everything that you've shown us about um, yourself and your rule from heaven. Thank you for um, all the ways that you've unveiled what it means to be the church in the world during this period in history. And we take seriously your call to holiness and to walk with you um, in in the victorious life that you've provided us with. Um, Thank you for all the ways that you've exposed and unveiled those those think, things that would undermine and and um, seek to wreck your church and our life with you and thank you for the encouragement that um, you've defeated you've defeated all your enemies spiritual enemies and physical enemies and um, we just ask that you you would help us. Um, to persevere and overcome and, you know, keep running the race. Um, And I suppose for us in the West and in places like Australia, it's about um, not so much the brute force of oppression and persecution, but it's about the subtleties often of um, uh, the the, the deceptive ways that, the enemy, your enemies would seek to distract us from your life and compromise our life with you. And, um, yeah, we take, the, we take your call to be holy and to return to our first love really seriously. And thanks for all the ways that you've unveiled your love for your people through this book, your covenant people from the very beginning, and we honour Israel and um, pray for Israel and we um, honour your church and we want to have a really high view of your blessed bride and the part we have in it. Um, We ask that you'd bless your church in our town and across the world and um, we want to treasure it, your church like you do. Um, and and lastly, just we take seriously that that urgency in your voice in those final chapters, that um, and that invitation that goes out to all the world to come and drink of the water of life. Just give us courage and conviction to share the truth of who you are and what you've done 
with the world around us. And I pray that your transforming spirit and the power of your word would continue to have a really powerful impact um, in the communities that we live in, in our families, in our workplaces, in our nations. Um, keep helping us, Lord, and we, we, we along with um, all of heaven and all of earth, Earth, say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.